and also Pentagon. First of all, I apologize first to those who came to my last talk for the fact that there was no talk. I had to go to the Archbishop of Canterbury and help Father Martin to take over and he fell ill and it was impossible to move anyone. So I apologize for both of us and thank you for coming. The second thing is that I must apologize for today's talk because I was stupid enough to carry a very big bag of books from the top gallery down and I fell and broke a couple of ribs and hit my head very badly. So that may put my mind right, but it may also make it less uh, workable. So this is the second thing. Um, then I had asked some time ago whether any one of you would gladly transcribe my thoughts. And now I must say, I had made arrangements for it to be done so that you don't need to take any trouble about it. But, but uh, I want also to say that uh, you are welcome to lend my tapes to friends, but ask them not to use them in, in writing or in print in any way, because these talks which I'm giving are fantasy talks. It's, uh, I want to rework them into a book, and so dispel uh, them. And the last thing, I have received from the Russian patriarchate um, they asked me a request to provide on the 19th and the 20th a translator for a representative of the patriarchate who will come to a meeting in Lambeth of the heads or the World Bank, and of course the representative speaks, doesn't speak enough English to cook. So if there is among you someone who could heroically give these two days, uh, I don't know exactly the time, it's probably from 10 to 5 or so, to tell me, could you tell me after the talk? Now, I'm coming to the talk itself.
a few small remarks are made about other things, and then we come to the vocation of Abraham and the first covenant between Abraham and God, and therefore between his descendants and God. But we do not notice most of the time that a long period elapses between the fall, the death of Abel at the hands of his brother Cain, and the covenant. And I would like us to reflect a little on this period, because it is a very important period for our understanding of our own destiny. So, <coughs> to map out <coughs> the thoughts <coughs> as I hope to be able to give them, I would like today and perhaps next time to speak of what the Roman Catholic theologian calls the holy pagans of the Old Testament. That is, the people who, after the fall, are no longer citizens of paradise, and at the same time are not yet under the first covenant between God and Abraham. These people are all, technically speaking, pagans. And yet, their names <coughs> are in the Old Testament, and none of them you can find both in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church singled out as saints, as people who knew God, served Him wholeheartedly, and were witnesses of the Lord God. And this is a very important element because <coughs> it makes us reflect on the situation <coughs> of the pagans of the world even since the covenant <coughs> since the coming of Christ and thus perhaps more justifiable judgment about them and what they represent to give you just an example or two examples to which I will return we read in the book of Genesis that after the calling of Abraham a man came who was called in the book of Genesis the high priest of the Most High who was at the same time a high priest of the pagan world and the king Melchizedek. His name means the righteous king. And it is he 
approved by command of God, caused upon Abraham and his family the divine blessing. So you can see here that Abraham, who was within the covenant, needed a blessing that could be imparted to him by someone who was exterior to him. And this, I think, is very important for us to remember, as I will try to make clearer later. Another pagan whom we mention with reverence, who is in our calendar, is Job. Job was not a member of the people of Israel. He was a Syrian, and yet he attained such spiritual maturity and saintliness that he has become a saint of the Christian Church. There are other names which I will mention later when it is um, useful to do so. But <coughs> this is only to say that there is a long period, and this period cannot be assessed in terms of time, that it may be centuries or thousands of years, when if the whole of mankind has lost paradise, that is, the total, intimate, communion and oneness with God and who has not re-entered into a new relationship that was to lead later to the coming of Christ. And then there are two other lines which I would like to follow. <coughs> the one is the destiny of the covenanted people of God, Abraham, and his descendants, and Israel, and ask ourselves how it is that a covenant was established, that Israel became the people of God, and yet that a moment came when Israel renounced Christ, who had come as the fulfillment of their life, and destiny. So let me dwell a little on this first question of the holy pagans of the Old Testament. We have a certain number of names, but of course this period is of immense importance in one particular way. It is not only the people of Israel that had been prepared by God and become gradually instrumental in making possible the incarnation. God had not abandoned all other people. 
And in this period which I'm speaking about, everyone is included, even those who later became part of the people of Israel. for the coming of Christ includes and involves all these people and it is important that it should be so because had it not been so when Christ came he would not have been received or recognized by the pagan world he would have been a stranger, rejected by them. So there has been thousands of years of preparation addressed to the whole of mankind in which number of its representatives responded, grew in knowledge of God, grew in saintliness, and together with their descendants became capable of receiving Christ at the moment when the chosen people had, as a whole, rejected him. Let us look at another side of things. In the beginning, mankind, to begin with, Adam and Eve and their immediate descendants were to know God in an intimate communion and know the created world through communion with God. To know the created world gradually, of course, progressively, as God knows it. But having lost contact with God, they are confronted with two things. On the one hand, a search for God. It is a search now while it was simple, childlike, innocent communion. And on the other hand, the whole fallen world of mankind is confronted with a world which God has created and which carries the imprint of his created king, creating wisdom. In other words, what we find in the Psalms, that the heavens sing the glory of God, that the whole nature has no, the nature the whole created world has not fallen away from God, man has. The rest of the created world that was to be led into the depths of divine knowledge by man is lost, but is not sinful. So that the created world <coughs> remains pure of stain 
and has become a victim of man's fall. St. Theodore's student used the phrase which I have already quoted to you when he says that as a result of the fall, since man is no longer capable of leading the created world <coughs> to God, <coughs> thanks to his own growth into an ever-increasing knowledge of him, the created world has become like a good horse ridden by a drunken driver. The horse is not responsible for what it does, it's a rider. And that is a very important thing because we have forgotten from century to century the significance of this created world. It has remained pure. It has not become sinful. It is the victim of human sin, but itself it is not sinful. And therefore, mankind, who had lost contact with the vision of the created world in God and through God, can still look at the created world and discover, discover not only its nature, as science does, or even art, but discover the maker of it. A little in the same way in which when we look at a work of art, we may first be impressed by its beauty as such. We look at it and it reaches us through its beauty and through its beauty it conveys to us some meaning because a, a work of art is made by an artist who saw meaning and strength <coughs> in doing it. But then we may discover through the beauty and through what is presented to us the meaning, the understanding which the artist had and which he projected into his piece of art. To begin with, we may commune with his mind, his experience. But beyond this, we may begin to commune with what God has revealed to him about the beauty and the meaning of the world that is being depicted. If you take music as an example, and I speak of it with hesitation and a feeling of shame because I have no understanding of music, but I have a certain understanding of what I'm going to say. If you present a sheet of paper on which a composer has written a piece of music. To one who is totally uninitiated, it is paper 
covered with hieroglyphics, with signs that cannot be read and that make no sense. But if you have learned to read these signs, you can begin to discover that every sign is a sound. It's not simply a mark on the paper. It, it contains a sound which you can reproduce and you can read, you can hear. If you put them together, you can discover that in their togetherness, they create a melody which reaches you and evokes in you a response. I will give you an example in passing. Many years ago, almost 50 years ago, when I started here a school for Russian children, among other things, we began to teach them to sing Russian popular songs. And one girl, who is now a grandmother, said to me, you know, something extraordinary happened to me. Up to the moment when we began to sing <coughs> Russian popular songs, I felt there was in me something dormant, something that could not find expression. <coughs> it was like an icicle at the core of my heart. And when we began to sing these songs, it was as though, one after the other, new chords that had been dormant in me began to resound until when I got deep into the popular music of Russia, my whole soul began to sing in a new way. <coughs> this is, I think, very important <coughs> because when a person can decipher music, can discover the sounds, can blend the sounds into a melody, it evokes, it awakens in this person a whole world which is a response, but a response which was lying dormant. It is not something totally new which is forced into the person's soul. It is the dormant musical beauty which begins to resound in this mind and heart and person. And then beyond this, if the person is capable of it, if the music doesn't simply reach him or her, but discloses something, beauty is disclosed. It is not simply sound and harmony. It widens the field of perception of beauty. And at that point, the person becomes capable of communing with the experience of beauty which the composer had. At that point, there is communion that begins. Communion between the composer and his experience of beauty and musical beauty in particular, and the one 
who heals or the one who performs. And if the person is herself or himself capable of it, beyond this communion with the composer, <coughs> the person can reach more, can reach the source from which the composer derives his perception of musical beauty. <coughs> this is a, an image, and I hope that I was able to convey it in a way that makes sense. From material vision to sound or to vision to harmony to beauty and to communing farther and farther with the creator on one level the human creator on the other level the divine creator and this is what mankind is called to achieve with regard to the created world. The created world, as I try to convey to you in my early talks, came into being because God called it into being by a world that was beauty, harmony, and meaning. And all the created world is in communion with God because it exists only because it, it is sustained by this divine act of love mediated by sound, let us say. In the beginning was the world. <coughs> so that we must learn to look and the surrounding world with new eyes. The surrounding world <coughs> is in potential communion with God. It cannot reach its fullness otherwise than with the help and under the guidance of mankind. And this is where we fail the created world. We may see beauty in it, but a beauty which we enjoy, not a beauty that always transfigures us. We do not see the maker in the thing made. And don't think that I am just imagining this thing. I remember many years ago, a psychologist was touring Europe and America asking two questions from a variety of people. The first question was, what is sound? To that, of course, everyone can answer in many words. But the other question was, what is a tree? And I remember that I had come recently from America on the first visit. And I had been impressed 
by climbing there to see how the rich, yet until girl, was capable of shooting upwards grass, trees that were full of stuff, of life, of intensity. And my answer was a tree is the expression of the intensity of life which is dormant or resting or finding its way in the earth. It was not a stroke of genius, but I decided to ask the same question from others. And I asked a question from a young theologian who had graduated very brilliantly from a theological college. To my question, what is a tree? He looked at me in a blank way and said, a tree? Building material. That is all he had ever seen in a tree. It was for him a footstool, a table, perhaps a shack, nothing else. It was murdered at the beginning because to make <coughs> of a tree building material, you must first kill the tree. That was what he did with the created world which he was seeing and of which he intended one day to become a priest. Killed first. I asked later a <coughs> young woman without particular education or culture the same question. She looked at me with eyes that became brighter and brighter and said, a tree, but it is beauty. Have you never heard the music which the wind calls out of a tree? Have you never seen the harmony of its branches moving? Have you never seen the stillness of a tree against the sky? A tree is beauty. Well, here is a perception of a created world. And do we see the created world in this way? But if we do not see it in this way, we, do, we cannot, through this created world, reach any knowledge of its creator. And this is where the subject of ecology, which is now so central to all sorts of discussions, becomes a theological subject. It's not a question, it's not a matter of preventing mankind from destroy, destroying its environment and therefore destroying itself. It's a question of destroying the only source 
which at the very root we have to discover beauty and to discover God in his work. In the same way in which we can discover Rembrandt or Mozart in what they have produced. And so we must learn, if we want to be people of the Bible, people of God, we must learn to look at the world that surrounds us with a sense of the sacred. Look at it and through it learn something about its maker. I do not mean to say that one can simply settle down, look at a tree, find it beautiful, and draw spiritual uh, conclusions. But one can look at the world that surrounds us, and suddenly it may be rare, it may happen once upon the time, suddenly very <coughs> transparent. See the glory of God shining through it. The girl whom I mentioned did not speak of the glory of God shining through the beauty of the tree, but this is what she saw. She saw beauty, pure beauty, nothing useful or capable of being used and certainly not capable of being murdered. And so this is something which is of immense importance for our understanding of these first chapters of the Bible, what they convey to us. I know that I'm speaking in a very strange way about these um, chapters in an unusual way. Perhaps some of you will think that uh, it's completely weird. And I remember one of our most respected uh, parishioners, the Russian nun, who after a talk of mine <coughs> was asked by me what she thought of my talk and who said, Oh, Father Anthony, it's like the dreamings of an old horse on a meadow. The dreamings of, of an ever-aging horse. But this is how I perceive it. And it has taken me a very many years to perceive things as I present them now. But I would like you not to accept what I say, but to ask yourself, is there any sense and truth in what I said? Because if you discover that you can look at all the created world, from the greatest to the smallest, from the most terrifying to the most appeasing, and see this is something that has originated in the wisdom, in the love, in the creative power and action of God, then it can perhaps help you to look, to see the world in a completely new manner. So this is something which applies to the totality 
of the pagan world. The pagan world had no other approach to God than looking at God, what God had made. He could worship God in his creation. There is a point at which mankind goes wrong on that line. It is by attacking divine names to what they discover in the beauty and the harmony of the terror of the world. But this is an interpretation. This is not a direct perception. At times, it is convenient. It is convenient to um, speak of a god or a goddess that embodies one or another of these elements. But these words of gods and goddesses must be transparent themselves. There must be a way of conveying something to others or of taking hold of something. Well, I will give you another image. <coughs> In the early 60s, I found myself, together with a Russian church delegation in New Delhi, at the meeting of the World Council of Churches, our first contact with it. Among those delegates, there was a Russian bishop who was a geologist by training and who had spent most of his life doing research in Siberia and who had communed very deeply with space and sky and trees and animals and who had learned to see something in them. And he asked me whether I would go with him to a multi-religious temple in Delhi. A temple that was divided <coughs> in sections in which representatives of many religions worship in their own way and their own gods. We went there and we had to take our shoes off before we entered the temple, which we usually did. But we were caught by the garden who said, Oh, sir, do not leave your shoes here. They are good shoes. You will not find them again. <laughs> I will find them in my office. So we came barefoot, and we went from one section to the other. What we did was, to kneel down against the wall at the back <coughs> of this section and pray to Jesus Christ. And at the same time, receive the message which the prayers of the people could convey to us. And what we both discovered is that people were not praying to the God elephant, to the God monkey, to this or to that idol. What we discovered from the way they prayed 
and from the extraordinary communion that established itself between them and us on that level that they were praying beyond the imagery to the only real God as we were praying <coughs> beyond all imagery which we may have to the only and real God and there was there an extraordinary communion <coughs> in prayer, in contemplation, in, in deep silence. And these various idols or images, instead of being horrifying objects that blocked the presence of God from us and from others, became totally transparent. It was of no importance who was the object of their devotion. What was important is that through this object, because they needed a complete, a concrete focus for their prayer, they reach out beyond, from soul to eternity, from their eternal soul to the eternal God. This also was important because it teaches us, it taught us to, and we have tried to convey this to others, the fact that we should not be in a hurry to say these people pray to idols, to dead idols. It's a blasphemy against the real God. They pray only to the only God that exists. But they pray through the only means that it is at disposal. <laughs> and then also we must be very careful about the vocabulary which we or they may be using. Because every nation, every culture, very often every person has got his own vocabulary, his own way of speaking of things. And at times the words are different, but one can see what the person wanted to convey. I remember when I was in my early twenties, I read something by Gandhi in which he said, the cow is my mother. And at that moment, he simply could not see <coughs> how he could use this parallel. Because in our vocabulary, to say that a lady is a cow is no compliment. <laughs> and yet, I understood later what to him a cow meant and how it embodied characteristics that were motherly and could be to him an icon of what motherhood signifies. I leave it to you to discover the meaning of that. But I think it is worth thinking about it. Because too easily we see idols which we reject because they are like a closed door instead of saying, it is a door which is close to me, 
because they cannot see through. But this door is transparent to others. <coughs> and they can see through to the beyond and to the real God. We will have to come back to this question of our assessment of the pagan world uh, in the time of Israel and in the time of Christ, in, in the time of the Church. Because the assessment has been very different. But for the moment I want to leave you with this approach to the created world and what each of us, Christian or non-Christian, believer or non-believer, can discover of God, even if he does not know, <coughs> he does not have a name for him. And we may discover in the course of my talks that at times between a pagan or even an atheist, there can be something between him and God something that makes them very close. I think I have already quoted to you this conversation I have had of a young officer in Russia who said to me, all right, I am an atheist. How can I ever have anything in common with God if he exists? And I said to him, do you believe in anything at all? And he said, yes. I believe in mankind. <coughs> and I said, exactly like God. We have that in common with God, you can start at this point. God and you believe in man. <coughs> and in particular, God believes in you, because you are part of mankind. And I think it's a very important uh, point on which we must all reflect from time to time. Now I will <coughs> end my talk at this point. I apologize for it being shaky and probably disorderly. And next time we will go on with this subject, not of the discovery of God through the material created world, but about the pagan world in relation to God and in relation to Christ. I want to thank you for being so patient.